I was, um, I was able to, uh, this week, achieve a feat, our family was. And the feat was, uh, it was quite big. We haven't achieved a feat like this for quite some time. And, uh, and so last, it actually happened last night, the, the, this final achievement of this feat happened last night. And it was really, really quite exciting. And um, we, we finally finished our first jigsaw puzzle for quite some time. It was, it's a... It's, it's come up, so where's Wally one? So there's like ridiculous amounts of little people wearing almost the same thing. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I think it's a thousand pieces. And um, yeah, but it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I realised how, how bad my eyesight had become when I'm, I'm it's like going, where is Wally? I just can't. And then we decided, after that, we decided to try and look, you know how you can look for, if you haven't done a where's Wally, you, there's all these other things you can do. You can find cameras and um, all these, uh, you can find a, um, a, a, a Wally in, uh, you can find a Mrs. Wally, all sorts of things. Anyway, so we, we went and it took, us, it took us for ages. And as we got to the, the final pieces of the puzzle, you know, you, you sort of, the, you, we're quite strategic in our, in our puzzle making. So you do the borders first. Everyone, everyone on board with that? Everyone on board with that? And then you do the key things that make sense. So in this puzzle, you had the blue tent. That was easy. Blue and white, there's lots of blue and white. We had the yellow bits, the sand pit. But then you had all these red bits as well that were pretty tricky. And then after you got all those, all those key bits sorted out, you're stuck with a whole lot of green and little bits of people. Oh, my word. So from the strategic of getting the border, getting the key parts, the obvious parts there, it was very strategic. We were focused. We go, all right, well, this place, let's look for pieces that have got a bit of yellow in it. Okay, that's got to be here. We were really focused on the task at hand. But as you got to just green, oh boy, the focus just went way off track. Grab a piece and just start chucking them in, guys, to see where it goes. Grab a piece. And we, it actually took us longer to do that last bit. We were lucky we had some friends over that could help us stay on focus <laughs> because it was just hard yards doing that last bit. And when you go off focus, things take longer. You end up at a different point. I learned that in my land surveying days. I was a land surveyor, and as soon as you've got a, 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 site, a line of sight that you need to um, peg something in, like say if you're putting a, a boundary in, you've got a line of sight. As soon as you mistake a six for a nine in your mind, all of a sudden you're a little bit off, just a little bit off. So over a metre, that little bit off is not very far. But over 150 metres, 200 metres, 300 metres, that... Focus is becoming quite big, and the landowner gets quite angry when your peg is two metres into someone else's boundary, or they've lost two metres of their land. Because as soon as you go a little bit off course, you actually end up in the wrong space. You don't want your boat, who's going on a direction, being set for a charted course, slightly off. Because as they set out, that land that was there will not be there over there. They want to be going on the right focus. Perhaps we, have, we know someone who's taken a little bit of their focus off their spiritual walk as well. Maybe it's yourself. We're taking a, a, a slight focus of God has veered them off course in devotion to Jesus. Stop them praying. Caused you to fall back into a sin that you thought that you'd been done with. Maybe it's just a subtle compromising of faith. 
Just a small part of saying, well, actually, I won't read my Bible today because I'm just a little tired. Or I won't pray today because I don't, I don't, I've got other things that I need to do. Or maybe it's, I'm not going to worship because I didn't like that song so much. Or maybe, maybe it's, I'll come to church because that's what I've always done. Maybe it was a decision that you made that just wasn't great and it's got you stuck in a space. And your focus leaves from being focused on Jesus to being focused on something else. Maybe on the issue at hand. Maybe on uh, a problem that you've got. And pretty soon, the worship that you have of Jesus, your focus has taken a hit. And maybe it's not straight away that you're off track. Maybe you still sort of see Jesus in the first week and month. But as you go longer and longer, you go, well, I won't go to church this week. I've got something else on. Well, I won't go to church this week. I'm a bit tired. Well, this week I've got a snuffle. This week... And all of a sudden, you haven't had the community of church for months and months. It can be a faith killer. Today, we're going to see how taking your focus off God will ultimately lead you off course. And we're going to look at that through the succession of King Solomon. You'll remember last week we had a look at King Solomon. And this succession of King Solomon, they've lost total focus on God. And it led to a division of the nation. A division that saw the king after king doing what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So let me pray as we get into this time of looking at this um, scripture. So God, I pray today you give us understanding, give us wisdom, give us knowledge as to how to stay close to you. We pray, Lord Jesus, that the words um, that are from scripture will, will, will really grab us today. We ask your blessing over us as we share, as we listen. Speak to us, Lord. Amen. You might want to get um, 1 Kings out, 1 Kings uh, chapter 12 out, um, and we'll be looking into that through the the sermon today. So if you've got it on your phones or in your Bibles, or um, if you've memorized it, that's really impressive. Just recall. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> three generations before, we're looking at Rehoboam and Jeroboam, just three generations before this fellow Rehoboam was around, Israel was, they were pleading for a king. You might remember they were pleading for a king. All they wanted was a king. Why did they want a king? To be like everyone else, be like the other nations. They've all got kings and they do look like they do all right. They look like they do all right. So, so let's be like the other nations. Regardless of the pitfalls of having a king, they had plenty of warnings. Israel still wanted a human leader. He still wanted someone to lead them. Even at the early stage, uh, we could see that the nation was already starting to take their eyes off God at that stage, placing it onto this human who they would want as king. Their hopeful saviour as such. Psalm 74 gives us, it gives us insight as to who the rightful king of Israel to be should be. They might have wanted to um, have some of this, not that that was there then. But anyway, but God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on earth. God was their king, yet they've said, no, I want a human king. Gideon, judge, 
He was asked to become king over the people and responded like this. He says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Samuel, he's unpleased with the nation's request for a, for a king. So he lays out what he sees some problems are to be. And you can look at this in 1 Samuel 8. He says, he will reign over you, the king will reign over you, the person. He will take your sons and appoint them to, be, to, uh, appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough the ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to equip and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. In essence, he's saying that the workers that you need in your own family lives, in your own community space, they're going to be gone because the king will have the right to come and take them for his own purpose. You're not thinking through this real well. <laughs> There's practical problems of having a king as well as putting our eyes off Yahweh. Yet the people still go, well, we still want a king. They seem to do it all right over there. We still want that king. They believe that having a king would unite the 12 tribes of Israel and form this strong, unified nation like all the other nations. So prior to the kings entering the scenes, the 12 tribes of Israel, they, they, they all had a central focus. There was... Uh, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, that was their central focus, where Yahweh was housed, I suppose. But the king shifted their eyes off that central focus and put it onto a human. And so as we've started to see over the last few months in this story narrative, Israel in this kingship era hasn't always had a smooth transition. By the time we get to Solomon's reign... And how that ended, remember last week we talked about it, it started pretty well. He was in a good space as a, as a king, the nation was doing pretty well. But by the time it ended, he'd got his focus off God. And by the time it ended, Rehoboam had taken the throne. The dream of the elders of the past of being one nation under the kingship of God, or the leadership of a king. It went from this thought, it's going to be awesome, to this reality of, this ain't going so well now. The monarchy from the end of Solomon's reign starts to become the nation's downfall. Now, some of the issues came in Solomon's time where Solomon had a whole lot of forced labor going on within the, the kingdom. And so Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, carried on his father's heavy-handedness, his heavy-handed policies um, that he put in place. He wanted to make sure that his temple was built, his, uh, the temple was built, his palace was built, the surroundings looked good. So he got people working really hard. And it didn't go well with the people, which you can understand. And there's a, a fellow that comes along. His name's Jeroboam, no relation, but just really similar names just to make it really tricky for us. Um, and, and he comes along and tries to change that narrative. Now, Rehoboam and Jeroboam are not related. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and we looked at Solomon briefly last week. And, and they were the rights, he had the right to the throne. Rehoboam was, is David's grandchild. So we're confident that he should have some say in the story here because we know that the, the, the Jesus is going to come through or the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of David. So we're happy that Rehoboam's still around and still king. So that's a good thing. But Jeroboam's not related at all. 
Jeroboam was one of King Solomon's administrators. But through the prophet Ahijah, God compelled Jeroboam to rebel. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and and will give Israel to you. So that's a pretty big prophecy to go over uh, an administrator, someone that's in, in the king's court, I suppose. Pretty big. So, so if you've got that over your life and you see the king making some decisions that are taking his eyes off Yahweh, what do you do about it? So Jeroboam goes, I, I need to become king. But Jeroboam, well, Rehoboam's problem, or his downfall, wasn't all, all to do with Jeroboam. We can read it um, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 12. So I'm just going to sort of throw it a little bit. Jeroboam, he hears that they made Rehoboam king. So he heads from Egypt to Israel for this inauguration and to see if Rehoboam might be sort of less harsh than his father Solomon was in that time. Rehoboam, in answering the challenge of Jeroboam, first goes to the elders who served his father, these older, more experienced fellows, that, um, and he gets their opinion. Rehoboam asks them, what would you do? Would you keep this heavy-handedness going? And they say in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 7, If you will be a servant to those people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they'll always be a servant. Listen. Rehoboam rejects their advice. Not a good idea. And goes to some young men who he grew up with. And in verse 10 it says, The young men who he grown up with, who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you, uh, laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. Gee, that's uh, verses 10 to 12 of 1 Kings 12. I, I think at this point, Rehoboam was starting to learn the art of making unwise choices. <laughs> We heard about uh, Solomon last week asking for wisdom, and I think Rehoboam at this stage needed to do that. He was like a compass that stubbornly pointed shipwrecks towards where, or ships towards where all the shipwrecks were. It was only ever going to end badly with that advice. So in front of him, he had a decision based on, on two lots of people. Those who were willing to share what he didn't want to hear, and those who are people that wanted to tell him what he wanted to hear. So what does he do? Listen to the the wise people that sort of makes him have to change what he's thinking? Or listen to those who are his friends, the people he knew that we were growing up with? Now, Rehoboam showed all the shortcomings of an arrogant teenager who thinks they know better, and he rejects the advice fully, of the wise men that were entrusted to him, and he takes the advice of his peers. He totally misread the room when it came to make the monarchy being liked in society. It's only going to turn badly. Because those that led to um, the people saying, well, I think Jeroboam will be a better king. So this is at the point in Israel history where they go, well, we can't follow him. So they split 
and they divide. The Israel nation divides. And we think, oh no, this isn't going to be good for anyone. But they're sick of being treated in the way that Solomon had ended up treating them and how his son's now treating them. So they say, we believe that Jeroboam will lead us better. There wasn't a big conflict or anything. And we're glad that Rehoboam's still in the picture because of the lineage thing. But Jeroboam takes 12 uh, of the tribes to form the nation of Israel in the north. And the tribe of Simeon is melded into the tribe of Judah. And they form Judah in the south. And like that, this 12 tribes that were looking for a king to unite them is all of a sudden a mess. They're split. They're split. And they're now two kingdoms, northern and southern. Now, when you read beyond this point in the book of Kings, uh, and into the, into the, you, you might hear that uh, you get two kings, and so it becomes a little confusing. So this is why it becomes a little confusing. There's two nations that they're talking through. So as you read through, you need to sort of have that, a little bit of that understanding. But over the next 200 years or so of Israel's history, um, there was only one of the kings, Jehu. He lasted 28 years, and he had the title of, I did all right. I did all right. Didn't do good. I did all right. All the rest of them, I did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It didn't go well. In the south, in Judah, over 530 years or so, there was only six in the 20 that were seen to be doing right in the eyes of the Lord. Six and a half kings out of 39 isn't a great strike rate. Do you think at some stage the nations would have got the idea that perhaps they've taken their eyes off the Lord a little bit too much and they've put all their eggs into one basket of a human? See, taking their focus of God, they mightn't have realized it at the start. It only made a little gap. But as soon as they got years and years down the track, wow, they were, they were far away, far away. Division was bad for the nation, Division is not a great place to live anyway. Division robs us from joy. You might know that in your own life. Division in the church undermines a church's witness in the community. Division in your own heart dashes hopes and dreams. Divisions rob the soul. But unfortunately, it's all too common. And the church not just this church, the church globally has taken a hit in society for it. Too many churches have disintegrated because of power struggles or a feud or a disagreement and have not been willing to find us a place of peace in the difference. And much of the time, it's over an issue that stops us from putting Jesus in the centre. Jesus said, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fail. You can find that in Luke 11. Jesus said this in the context of speaking to the Pharisees. Um, and they were accusing Jesus of, of casting out demons by the, the power of Beelzebub, which is the demon himself. Jesus is essentially saying that if it would be counterproductive for Satan to oppose himself, as it would just undermine his own authority. Instead, Jesus is saying that by casting out of demons, it's actually the arrival of a new kingdom coming. God's kingdom, one kingdom. He's making a statement about the importance of the unity of 
people within the kingdom of God. Because if the kingdom of God is to advance, it will need to be a kingdom that is not set against itself. It will need to be a kingdom that is not divided. There's plenty of forces that are against the kingdom of God. And the church's division can't be one of them. The church needs to show that we are united in Christ. I don't know if I've told you the story of of some of the things we did at at Newport Baptist Church. Newport was just a a reasonably small church, um, but we were in a a whole, there was a whole lot of churches all in in and around that were within the same space. Every year at Easter, we would gather together as churches to do a a sunrise service and a, a main service. And it was wonderful because... It was, it was not just the Baptist church, this is all the churches. We had um, the Anglicans, Catholics, Church of Christ, um, Baptists. We had whole, all, all sorts would come together, and it was a real blessing. It was fantastic, where we would um, worship together. And so we'd have this worship in the park, and people would just come past and go, oh, who's running this? And we'd say, it's the churches, not one church, the churches. And they'd say, this is fantastic. We did alphas together. We did all sorts of things together because we're all talking about the kingdom, not about our church. It showed something special was going on in that area that we didn't have a monopoly on wanting just that people. So what can we do as a community and as individuals so that we don't lose our focus on God and end up off course? I want to run through four quick principles um, that we can learn Uh, from the division of Israel. The first one is be careful who you listen to. Rehoboam, he made some pretty vital mistakes, didn't he, in the way that he listened. He rejected the the advice of his elders and took on the advice of his peers that he grew up with. Now, this is not to say that that everything from people your own age is not going to be worth listening to. And it's not to say that everything that someone who's older than you is going to be worth listening to. It's not to say that at all. But as we read of Rehoboam, one key mistake is that friends generally are predisposed to telling us what we want to hear because they don't want to hurt you. We have a predisposition to hearing truth, regardless of whether it's truth or not. So as your friends come and talk to you, unless you've got this understanding that actually iron sharpens iron, quite often we'll hear something that we just want to hear. Our friends want to please us. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend. Your friends aren't meant to hurt you. But actually, wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy just multiplies kisses. We need to have friends who are going to do more than just give us lip service as to what we want to hear. We need friends who are going to share the hard word with you. When Rehoboam became king... What do you think these friends were going to gain if they told him, I actually don't think you should do that? I'm not saying they, it doesn't say they had their own ambitions, but maybe they did. Now these friends to, who give you the right word, who give you a word that might be hurtful, might be painful at the time, they don't come around very often. They don't. You need to find them and you need to nurture those relationships. They might be long-lasting relationships that you've had for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. But they're the ones who will let you know when you're losing focus. Who will let you know that you're straying off course. They're the ones that says, I'm I'm a bit concerned about you at the moment. But you know what? I'm not just concerned. I want to do something about it. 
I want to meet with you once a week to chat about how you're going and pray for you. They're the ones that you want. On the other side of the scenario is that the counsel of the wise is very important. They gave a very alternative view to the friends. And Rehoboam missed out on their wisdom. He missed out on the opportunity to stay the course. Maybe you've had the advice, or you've had to be the advice of the trusted friend. Maybe you've been that person. And, and you've had to step into a conflict scenario that your friend has been in. I wonder how you dealt with it. I wonder if you let them hear what they need to hear, as in, you need to forgive, you need to step back, you need to have a look at yourself rather than just looking at the other person. Or have you sought to just... You'll be all right. You're all right. You're doing it right. You're in the right space. Have you sought the other perspective of the other story? There's always two sides to a story, isn't there? Rehoboam just looked at one side. He chose what he wanted to hear, whether it was good advice or not. And it got him into strife. And it leads into the second point. Division is seldom one-sided. You've got to own your own part in this. From the beginning of the story, it appears that Rehoboam is completely in the wrong. But when you look at the the wider story of it, go home and read it all, Jeroboam is told by a prophet that he would be a king. So at that point, Jeroboam goes, Ripper, (laughs) I'm going to be king. And he goes about trying to make himself king, trying to take Solomon's kingdom from him. He had no right to it, but because he got told this, he went, instead of waiting for God, he went on his own way. He, he failed in his attempt to become the king, to dislodge Solomon, and he had to flee for his own life. So when he comes back, he ends up getting what he was after in the end, some of that kingdom, most of the kingdom, ten tribes. So in God's goodness and wisdom, he, he keeps Rehoboam in the lineage to help us to understand the lineage of, of Jesus. But once you've gone off course that little bit, You can end up getting a long way from the destination. And I feel like that was Jeroboam's issue. As his reign started, and to make sure it was able to keep people focused, rather than point them to to God, let them go back to Jerusalem to worship, he makes two golden calves, and he sets them up for the people to bring their sacrifices to. Where have we heard about this before? This didn't work the first time, people. (laughs) They started veering off track very quickly. 1 Kings 12.30 says a, a similar thing. This became sin. As soon as the idols started coming out, it becomes something that takes our eyes off Jesus. Because that's what what sin is. Sin is turning our back on God and going a different way. It's not just all the bad things we do. Making a sacrifice to a golden calf is a bad thing. It's not honouring of God. But we've already dishonoured God by turning our back on him and saying, this is what we should be doing. So, so God sends Jeroboam, another prophet, to confront him. The role of the prophet was to bring people back to God, and Jeroboam needed this. Yet this was going to come at a cost, and the result of this comes in 1 Kings 13, 33. Even after this, the prophet Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. 
Come on, Jeroboam. He'd gone so far, of course, it feels like there was no way back. If we don't hear the story of the prophet, you probably just think, oh, he's pretty strong in his leadership. I'm going to do this, and this is what I'm going to do. However, we hear that there's another side to the story. Jeroboam rejected the prophet. Jeroboam wasn't willing to admit he had a problem and he had to accept ownership for his own mistakes. And it led to his downfall. Division is seldom one-sided. Take, um, take control of what you can take control of. What's your part in it? The third thing is that division impacts generations to come. Starting out... Um, a little bit off course means you're going to get to the end point way offline. Both Rehoboam and Jeroboam, their sin had these lasting effects on the generations to come, not just on their, their sons, but the generations to come. And we'll go through a few of them. 1 Kings 14, 14 verse 30 says, There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Continual. There was, no, there was no resolution. 1 Kings 15 verse 6 says, There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. Not just for a little bit, throughout the whole lifetime. These are the, these are the nations that were together. 1 Kings 15, 15 verse 16 says, There was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. These were a united kingdom. The whole idea of the king was to unite them, and they became a divided kingdom that fought against themselves. The narrative of Israel and Judah continued to be one of dissension and pain. And they just got further and further off track. See, the division took place in 930 um, uh, uh, BC. And it continued to be this contentious relationship since then. We might remember Jesus' ministry, he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus was going from Jerusalem to Galilee, and to get there, you have to go through Samaria, which is where the experience happened. The Samaritans, they're a remnant of the Jews still living there from the northern kingdom established after, uh, under Jeroboam. The Jews from the south, from Rehoboam's kingdom, Judah, despised the Samaritans so much, they would go out of their way to walk around Samaria to avoid any contact with them. But Jesus, he comes in, he's this reconciler. And he goes right through Samaria. And he talks with this woman at the well and finds reconciliation for her. You can imagine what they were thinking. Jesus is in Samaria and talking to this lady. Division has the capacity to derail families, not just for one generation, but generations to come. Perhaps you've felt that pain yourself. Maybe even today you've got a division within your family or within a close friendship group, and it's painful. Paul reminds us in Romans 12 verse 8, As far as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, quite, easy, quite often it's easy to look at the other but as far as it depends on you, it's your responsibility. You can be the bringer and the starter of peace. You can step up in a grace-filled space and stop division and seek to fulfill God's ultimate plan for unity within the kingdom of God. You can do that. And it leads us to this last and final point. Getting your focus off God is the root cause of any sort of division. 
Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they aren't the ones who, who struck the first match with this division. It was Rehoboam's dad, really, King Solomon, but we cannot even go back further. Last week we found King Solomon, was, he was doing great. He was in a great time of ministry. He was peaceful in, in Israel. The other nations were coming to him and going, look how good he is. In response to Solomon's request, he's filled by, God fills him with wisdom and the nation reaps the benefits. But little by little, he stops following that wisdom. You might remember I talked about the story of a frog. A frog that's dropped in a pot of boiling water will go, ouch, and jump out. <laughs> a frog that is placed in a pot of lukewarm water will go, what a nice bath. And as the water gets boiling and the heat goes up, it won't recognize that it's actually being cooked. By the time he comes to care, a pair of what, aware of what's really happening, it's too late. He can't respond. Solomon jumped into uh, the lukewarm pot of water. Solomon married foreign women, way too many of them. <laughs> These foreign women wives, they worshipped other gods and they talked Solomon into building them temples to these other gods so they could worship their gods, their little g-gods. Solomon started to take little steps away from God, which ended up taking him way off course. Go back to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Solomon forgot that and, gives him, and God gives him a message. In 1 Kings 11 it says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Uh-oh. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe. For the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon took his focus off the Lord. It's as simple as that. The most important thing we can do as a church is to realign our gaze towards Jesus. To walk humbly before Jesus. We may have different ideas. We may have different answers we may not think the same way. That's okay. But what's not okay is if we take our eyes off Jesus. The single greatest thing I can do as your pastor is to humbly walk closely with the Lord. Husbands, the single greatest thing you can do for your wives, walk closely with the Lord. Wives, it's the same for you. Parents, for your children's sake, walk closely with the Lord. In your school, in your workplaces, in your streetscape, wherever you may be, our core defense of division is humbly worshiping our Lord. Jesus says, A house divided cannot stand against itself. The opposite is true. A house united will withstand the, the hurricanes that come at it. Be united, humbly. Before God, I said earlier that we need to be praying for the decision that we're making regarding Upway. Our prayer needs to be that we are 
united, regardless of outcome, regardless of outcome, that we're united, that we may see the other point of view, but to be a church that continues to seek God. So this morning, let me finish in prayer and a prayer over each of us that are here. For those of you who have joined online, I want to pray for us as a church that we may be unified as one and that we may be a great witness to the community around us. So Lord, my prayer today is for a unified church, that we may be able to keep our eyes focused on you, Lord, that we may humbly deal with situations of conflict, that we may seek right and wise counsel, not just what we want to hear. So God, we seek your wisdom and your help to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We need your help, Lord. May our eyes be focused first and foremost on you, that we may stay the course and not fear to the left or the right. And Lord, if there's anything in any of us that needs to do this morning to find reconciliation with someone, may, they get, may you give them the courage to do so with humility and with grace. Lord, we ask that you restore any broken relationships, family relationships, friendship relationships, hurts of the past. May you give us strength to dive into the painful places. May we be quick to forgive. May we be quicker to ask for forgiveness. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.